Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. We're delighted to present this evening's event, an evening of short stories, which we organise in partnership with Pinjop, who we've been working with since 2014 on presenting evenings of, of live readings of short stories by special guest speakers, which are short stories that are inspired by our exhibition programme. And tonight's event, we have a really perfect match, both the speaker and the story, which connects to our current exhibition, Jasper John's Something Resembling Truth. And to introduce tonight's speaker, um, I'd like to introduce the CEO and co-founder of Pinjop, Simon Oldfield, who will introduce this event and tonight's speaker. Thank you. Hello everyone and uh, welcome to the Royal Academy. I'm Simon Oldfield, I'm the co-founder of Pindrop and it really is a great pleasure to be back here to introduce the latest in our ongoing series in collaboration with the Royal Academy. We uh, bring to the stage really extraordinary people who read short fiction, as Kira explained, in response to the main exhibition programme. And today it's really special because the collaboration is just so perfect. It touches on and brings to life the Fizzles Farade's publication that was um, a collaboration between Jasper Johns and the iconic, fantastic Irish writer Samuel Beckett. Many of you have probably seen the exhibition, you've seen that particular work, which is just stunning, the way it's been displayed and it's exhibited and just exquisitely and occupies and commands its own space. And both the language and the imagery come together so, so perfectly. Um, Lisa is extraordinary. I know some of you are here this evening who are familiar with Lisa Dwan and with her amazing work and what she's done with Beckett's work. Um, she's part of a long heritage of actors who embody and just live and breathe Beckett. And when she's on stage, you really feel something quite amazing. You feel that you know you're experiencing something quite special. I'm completely going off script here, but, you know, that's, I know her well enough to be able to do that. Um, so I'm going to go back to script to make sure I've covered everything. But she really is one of this generation's leading Beckett actors. She's known for her stunning performances uh, with Not I, um, which many of you would have seen at the Royal Court, and something more recently called Nose Knife, which was something that she really brought to life and she created um, her own interpretation of that work. It was a very powerful performance that sold out at the Old Vic last year. Um, it really did wow critics and audiences, and the reviews were, were incredible. For this particular publication, it was published in 1972, um, and some of the works evolved over time, but it was published in 1972, and the collaboration has become recognised as one of the most iconic um, and most important artist books that was produced in the 20th century. It really is a stunning collaboration between two incredible artists, Beckett and Jaffa Johns. Um, but that's really enough about me and the introduction, I'm going to now introduce the amazing Lisa Dwan. Horn came at night. I received him in the dark. I had come to bear everything, bar being seen. In the beginning, I would send him away after five or six minutes till he learned to let go of his own accord. Once his time was up, he consulted his notes by light of an electric torch. Then he switched it off and spoke in the dark. Light silence, dark speech. 
It was five or six years since anyone had seen me to begin with myself. I mean, the face I had poured over, so I'll let myself be seen before I'm done. I'll call out if there is a knock. Come in. But I speak now of five or six years ago. These allusions to now, to before and after, and all such yet to come, that we may feel ourselves in time. Far a bird, a moment past, he grasps and is fled. It was he had a life, I didn't have a life, a life not worth having because of me. It's impossible I should have a mind, and I have one. Someone divines me, divines us. That's what he's come to, come to in the end. I see him in my mind, there, divining us, hands and head a little heap. The hours pass, he is still. He seeks a voice for me. It's impossible I should have a voice, and I have none. He'll find one for me. Ill faces, agonies, loves, the different loves. Happiness, too, yes, there was that, too, unhappily. Moments of life, of mine too, among others, no denying, all said and done. Happiness, what happiness, but what deaths, what loves. I knew at the time, it was too late then. Ah, to love at your last and see them at theirs. The last minute, loved ones. And be happy. Why? <coughs> Uncalled for. No, but now. Now. Simply stay still. Standing before a window. One hand on the wall. The other clutching your shirt. And see the sky. A long gaze, but no, gasps and spasms. A childhood sea, other skies, another body. Thank you. Thank you very much. My goodness, that was uh, very powerful. I don't know how you do it, actually. I didn't do it. Beckett did. Sorry. Everyone's here to hear you read and speak about Beckett and your experience with Beckett. So um, I'm going to just open up the question initially with, where did it begin with your relationship with Beckett? I suppose the very first time that I, I encountered Beckett was when I was at home in Athlone, I think I was 12 years of age, and A. Joe, the television um, play that Beckett himself um, co-directed, um, was on with Jack McGowan, and we talked about Sean Phillips earlier. Mm. And uh, I walked into the living room to see this haunted man's face, and this voice like a relentless viper, um, <laughs> just so... She sounded like she was from Athlone. I must speak to her about that. But um, <laughs> um, the town where I'm from, which is this kind of relentless, kind of vicious flatness to it, or maybe that's just how I see it <laughs> or hear it. And, um, um, and even though I maybe 
and perhaps more than likely didn't understand it. I couldn't look away, and I was extremely haunted by it. So that was my first interaction with Beckett. And then years later, when the Gay Theatre were committing all of Beckett's plays to film, I was um, around, in and around that, and I was, took part in um, a piece of monologue with Stephen Brennan. And one day, driving to work, um, Stephen Brennan, who's a great Beckett actor who played one of the best luckies I've ever seen, um, among other things. Um, but he, he told me about this play, Not I, where in an entirely blackened out auditorium, there's this disembodied mouth eight foot above the stage. And even though the mouth is completely locked still, it appears to float or osculate across the auditorium. And um, he told me also that he knew someone who'd gone mad trying to learn it, but I only remembered <laughs> this disembodied mouth conveniently. And um, a few years later, I came home to find the script of Not I on the floor with uh, time and audition for the following week. And, um, you know, my first thought, like maybe everybody else is here, I don't know, was like, oh, God, Beckett. <laughs> um, and I thought I'd need a to dig out an intellectual pickaxe to tackle this impenetrable mountain and um, or call my brother, but he didn't answer, uh, this <laughs> academic. And um, left to my own devices, I just sat down and read. And what I heard was a transcript of how my mind works, how thought works. And I heard Athlone, I heard... Uh, the nuns, I heard the acerbic parochial asides no sooner buttoned up his britches, um, you know, my mother's tender mercies, the nuns, you know, God is love, and I heard home. And I didn't hear it in a kind of linear stream of consciousness, you know, reminiscent to uh, Joyce or Eliot. It didn't seem neat and tidy. It felt more violent than that, more visceral than that. It, it appeared to me to be like a cacophony of sounds coming on top of one another. And I knew then that it had to be spoken at speed. Um, and then at the audition, the director's only note was that Beckett wanted this to speak um, to the nerves and not the intellect. And uh, I thought that I might be on to something. One day we went, uh, I got the part, and, and one day we um, went to uh, Battersea Park to kind of develop some sensory techniques because learning this piece is what drives people crazy. It's almost impossible. And uh, so you're so alone with it and you're in order to ha host a disembodied mouth on stage, you wear black makeup from here to here or an eye mask on and then your head is put into a head harness um, so you can't see, hear or move. Um, so to recall this tricksy fragmented text at such speed, it's Im important to develop some sensory connections. And uh, I still use the ones I developed in Battersea Park where... How long ago was that? Back in 2005. And, um, and uh, I can't do the math. Maybe 12 or 13 years ago or something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, every time you get to the April, that April morning, I, 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 I reach for the, the grass and Croker's Acres uh, uh, place in the text um, near Beckett's home in Fox Rock. And um, uh, I one day was putting on the, the bl blindfold reaching for the grass, and I performed the whole text with my director sat next to me, and I lifted my eye mask one day during rehearsal, and I saw that I had collected an audience of park bench drunks who <laughs> stood there with, you know, gripping their cans of cider, the substance they were using to, um, 
to quieten that voice. And I realize that Beckett's work is visceral and immediate and does speak directly to the gut, um, even the inebriated ones. <laughs> um, also, my niece, I was rehearsing at home the, the, the last time I was about to go on a U.S. tour, and I was, uh, had a visit from my uh, sister-in-law and my little niece, who was five at the time, four or five, mm-hmm. and... Uh, um, as the pasta was boiling, I said, can you run the lines with me? I was grabbing anyone <laughs> to run <laughs> lines with me. And um, as I began the text, my little niece, who was running around my flat like a lunatic on too much sugar, just <laughs> stood there, dumbfounded, her mouth open for the entire monologue. And then at the end, her mum said to her, what do you think that was about, Rahul? And she just, without even a beat, everything in the world... Wow. So I guess I learned that Beckett did want it to bypass the intellect and, mm. and mm. play directly to our centre, as yes. Billy called it. And, and your performances are so physical as well. You bring a great physicality and something quite visceral to those performances. I, and anyone that's seen you perform recently knows knife, uh, yeah, uh, knows knife would have seen that very the embodiment of something else that that uh, it was definitely part of the landscape part of the physicality of being of the human condition but also the the text was was brought to us uh, life in a very different way can you talk about the physicality of performing beckett well there's different horses for courses yes. you know not i you would think just moving your mouth how hard can it be um I've herniated discs in my neck. I have a hiatal hernia from trying to push the sound out at the speed of thought, a lovely, elegant alien fist that sticks out of my uh, abdomen. And, um, you know, you pull muscles in your calf or in your buttocks when you're performing, not I. It's so demanding. Um, The pacing of nine paces, you wouldn't think, is that arduous in footfalls. And yet, I'd be so physically drained after a Mm. performance of it, I'd have to be gathered by my dresser each time before basically throwing me into the chair in Rock by (laughs) in the trilogy. Um, The challenge, I guess, came... Uh, in a, it, some bigger questions loomed. What to do with the body in a piece that was never meant to be staged? Yes, um, all about in, in text for nothing, and I'll have my critics for that. You know, it shouldn't be spoken by a woman. A lot of academics of the old guard said, um, or it shouldn't be staged at all. And um, what I heard when I read text for nothing was the early origins of not I. I saw him playing with his metaphysics. And if not I, you know, the long form of that, the blueprint of that, uh, it felt like Beckett hit a nerve when he came to the unnameable. And he referred to the the text for nothing as the afterbirth of the unnameable. I guess when I came to reading those, I thought, I know where he was headed with that. Mm. These were uh, notions, his, his games, his, his early metaphysics, you know, in their fattier form. Um, but there was still the question, how was I going to embody this? What was I going to do without his rigid stage direc- directions? Mm. What was I going to do with this you know, female body, this young female body, you know, um, am I going to dress it up like an old crone? Um, How do I make these words, which to me, learning them, leave. All you had to do was stay at home. They wanted me to go home. 
Where would I go if I could go? Who would I be if I could be? Well, what would I say if I had a voice? I mean, I was learning those lines in, you know, in the middle of Brexit. (laughs) Mm. And it struck me that Beckett wrote these at a time when Europe was trying to understand herself after the war. And here we are again. Yes, the parallels are... Yeah, and so something struck me. I was in Ireland learning these at the time, and uh, friends of mine said, you have to get to the National Library. Or the the National Gallery? No. The uh, British Library? No, no. It'll come to me. Anyway, a gallery in in Ireland where the bog bodies are buried. And and so I, I, I went along and I saw these bog bodies that had been dug up in the Bog of Allen, which is where I'm from, the centre of Ireland, this flat, torn-up landscape that looks like a big open wound. And Becca was writing about our wounds. And these are bodies that are thousands of years old. Um, Heaney wrote about them. They uh, populate the bogs of Europe. Um, but Heaney wrote about them in Tullin Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really weird feeling. When I walked into the room, there was a guy hunched over, crying over this 2,000-year-old corpse, or maybe older than that. And uh, It was a very moving thing to think that this flesh that had absorbed all the chemicals that had kept, preserved the the flesh, and this, the last stubborn vestiges of life, um, that that these chemicals in the in the peat in the bog and um, peat bogs had had um, maintained would would kind of live on to create a visceral reaction in someone mm-hmm. of such you know loss and then a lot of the bodies had been brutalized before they were buried um, there was a kind of ceremony uh, uh, a brutality to them and then you don't have to think that far to think of bodies such as baby Allens washed up on the beach in Turkey. Mm, mm. Um, or think of all those bodies mm. and that we're able to dismiss from our daily minds if we call them migrant. Mm. And, um, and so I decided to start from that place. And you know, also the tomb bo- babies' bodies had been discovered, 857 babies' bodies found in a septic tank absorbing Ireland's shame. And uh, I just felt a need to dig that out. And, um, and that's what I used as my starting point, my visual starting point for wow. Text for Nothing. So I begin in a bog hole. It, it looks a little like a, um, a rock face, but that's just because we ran out of paint. It was supposed <laughs> to look like a, a bog hole. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to put it in, in this kind of, yeah, open wound. And I can't believe that the old Vic said yes. Yes, they went for um, it. And they went Did for Did you it. explain the context when you, I mean, obviously you, when you, you took the idea to them and you took it as your idea, what, how you wanted to produce it. Did you go with all of the underpinning of the ideas that you went with? You, you shared all of that at the outset. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I rang up Bill Nye when I heard um, there was a change of guard in the old Vic. Now's my moment. 
I couldn't even remember his name. Do you have that fella's uh, number who's just taken over the old Vic? Uh, well, I'll have to see if I can give it to you. Okay, and then a few minutes later, a text came through with his number. And I rang. I was in New York. And uh, I said, hi, um, I'm Lisa. Anyway, I have this idea for this. And I went on and on and on. And there was just silence. And then he went, Okay. <laughs> and, and that's really how easy it was they were a fabulous team to work with yeah. um, but I still couldn't believe that in this duel that um, you know he, um, he said yes and it wasn't until I was in this crevice 10 foot above the stage this vertical bog hole um, that I realised I was scared of heights <laughs> looking out at <laughs> a thousand people but that was the least yeah. of my worries with 75 minutes of you know Baketti and Yes. gobbledygook to uh, root and put into this body. Mm. And you've done some work on the, the influences on Beckett's, his work, the Joyce and Dante and various other things as well. And I think you've also you've looked into the, the broader impact of, of Beckett's work in the, the, the wider cultural environment for musicians and composers and, and artists too. But maybe you did some work in Florence, which was very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, things have all been very organic, yes. um, how things happen. I was performing the Beckett trilogy in Paris, and friends of mine, um, very generous friends of mine, said to me, um, you've never been to Florence, uh, we'd love to take you. And I had a weekend off, and uh, I went to Florence, and I was all excited, having never been before. And people said to me, um, um, oh, you really should check out the English Cemetery. Yeah, yeah, I've never been to Florence before. I want to see the Medici house. I want to, um, and I don't want to go to a graveyard in the outskirts of the city. Um, but it was very strange. I was down in a restaurant and uh, the chef came out and he said, you really should check out the English cemetery. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, after I've done, and so I only had three there, days there. Um, and then finally, and this is maybe the 10th time somebody has said this to me, I walked into the hotel. Uh, Mr. Wan, you know the English cemetery is, Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. So I went across with my friends and rang this old bell. And this Dutch painting of a woman, you know, um, only came up to my shoulder with like a handkerchief over her head comes to the gate and who are you and I said well I'm Lisa apparently they rang from the hotel um, to say that I'd be uh, checking the place out <laughs> and uh, she said no but who are you and my friends said oh this is Lisa she's a, a Beckett actress oh I'm related to Beckett I'm Beckett's cousin Julia Holloway had been an academic in Princeton and um, she was a Joycean and a Dante scholar um, and she brought me in and she gave up. Something happened in her life and she gave everything up and um, uh, kind of gave her life to Elizabeth Barrett Browning and to Dante and to uh, committing Dante's songs with her choir to recordings and also educating the exiles of Europe, uh, Romani fa families that she takes in and educates as a, a, a charitable um, occupation in this cemetery. Mm -hmm and maintaining this cemetery of, of exiles in Florence on the outskirts. And we're, we're walking through this Cypress Avenue, and I said to her, what do you think it was that drew Joyce and uh, Beckett to Dante? And she went, oh, it was exile. And so I knew I'd be back, um, and 
that's when I rang, a bit like my call to um, <laughs> <laughs> the old Vic, to Radio 4, would they uh, do this documentary on her, and they agreed. Wow. Um, so she's played a big part in my life and came to opening night of Nose Knife. And, um, and actually, it was uh, Donatello's uh, Mary Magdalene, um, that wooden sculpture in the Duomo Museum that became the inspiration for me, along with the bog bodies, for the visual for um, Nose Knife. And just talking about what you read this evening, you selected those three. We spoke about it at length, about which ones you would choose, and you chose those three for a particular reason. Can you maybe speak a little bit about those particular works? Yeah. I mean, one of the most enjoyable things when you... or I have kind of fallen into Beckett's world is that you start to know his ideas and you see them appearing and reappearing and what I love is watching uh, a writer in transit Mm. and these are written quite early on um, and they were translated earlier but you see the early origins and you probably heard it of not I Mm -hmm. I won't say I anymore And, um, and and I see um, how they've affected um, Ilse Nil said one of his last pieces. Um, and I, what I adore about Beckett is his relentless pursuit to pair away, to, to improve to the, the rigor and mm. the technique and the discipline that he goes uh, to to capture the it of it all. Um, and to make it so universal by paring away all the fat, mm. to put his very wound on the page and on the stage, mm. but to take away all the biography, to take away the kind of biographical coordinates so that we don't get caught up in his story, but he leaves us space to find ours. And um, that, to me, is so fascinating how he goes about that. Mm. Um, but it was fascinating to watch you also dis- going through the, those particular fizzles and, and how your voice reacted to different stories and the language and different stories and the tone of those stories and the texture of those stories and then seeing how they emerged. Those three that you selected were quite you know, specific to the way you read and perform Beckett, which I found fascinating to, to witness leading up to this point. Wow. I, I can't comment on that because I was <laughs> doing it. Well, well, tr- trust me, it was quite an incredible thing to, to witness. Um, you don't just do Beckett, though, and I think um, I know we're here to talk about you with Beckett, but you've done some other fascinating things. And most recently, you've been in Washington performing in a Pinto, and you were in Dublin just a little bit before that. So you've done a, a, a whole range of work. Just tell us a little bit more about your life beyond Beckett, if there is such a thing. Oh, there was a big life beyond Beckett. I was a ballet dancer before I uh, fell into acting, and I was a warrior princess in my early life. Um, uh, I've done a lot of, I've had a lot of lives. I, um, I'm responsible for the onesie. <laughs> uh, no, but it, in terms of just acting, um, I have just finished a run of Pinter, and I met a friend of mine, Kenny Lonnerin, who wrote uh, uh, Washington by the Sea. In Washington by the sea? Manchester by the sea, Jesus. <laughs> we met in Washington. And, um, um, and he said to me, how are you finding these Pinter plays? And These are early Pinter TV plays. And I said, yeah, yeah, they're, they're fun, you know. He's, he's fluffy. He's <laughs> like, you must be the only person who finds Pinter fluffy. Um, 
And I did. And I think one of the challenges I've had um, in the last year or so, uh, Beckett changed me. Like, really changed me. Not only because he afforded me a, a purchase in my career in a way I never had before, but he stretched me um, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically. Uh, he places our noses against the membrane between the here and the not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize that I have so many selves wrapped up in one, and uh, that has been an extraordinary um, place to be. I mean, to do not I, for example, to have your body removed as a woman, is so liberating. Uh, you get to play consciousness, not just one, you know, the, the, the multiplicity of selves. And that is an extraordinary landscape. And it's very hard to go back into, um, let's say, Pinter's rigid, uh, slightly hilarious tightrope between virtuous wife and uh, sexy whore. Um, or, you know, Conor MacPherson, God bless him, you know, how he manages with the greatest economy of words, right, characters for women, you know, that go from note to shrill in a mere nanosecond. Um, and there's been, you know, and that's been so shocking for me, having been spoiled rotten with this landscape, um, this extraordinary yes. um, viewpoint to then go back into these anorexic male fictions and, and <laughs> I, I have found it to be uh, corrosive and depressing and um, wow. my uh, what has happened the kind of hangover the hangover I think it's important to be very candid about this quite frankly but um, the, the hangover um, of, of, of the knowing or the knowledge that Beckett has given is that I can't do that very successfully. So I try and dignify these characters with um, more than what's on the page. And that can create a lot of tension um, when you're not uh, you know, doing the fiction's bidding. Mm. And um, I've heard in the last year or so, you don't speak our language. You might be, you know, uh, the Beckett actor or something, but I'm an actor. You don't speak our language. And I, I pay attention to repetition. Beckett's taught me that. And I've heard a kind of chorus emerge, in my profession at least, um, for daring to um, reach out to bigger things in these from these small positions. And I have found that to be um, a lonely place. Mm. And uh, I keep being drawn back to Beckett, where I'm welcome, where all of me is welcome, Mm. and more. And Beckett's never satisfied. He wants more. And And, um, it's a gorgeous place to be. He pays us such great compliments um, in that regard. And, you know, whenever you dig with Beckett, you always find something. Um, uh, particularly during text for nothing, you'll come across something. But sufficient unto the day, of course, it's in the Bible or Dante, and mm-hmm. all the. And you don't need that information. I spoke about it being, you know, this universal thing that speaks to our gut. But should you want to dig, and I do, there's rich pickings always to be found, and that just isn't the case with a lot of writers. Mm. 
So I've been in a lucky position of late where writers have offered to write for me and I'm very excited about that because I don't want to be the crazy Beckett girl for the rest of my life. But, um, um, but you, you, yeah. Yes, you just mentioned writers do want to write for you and uh, there's a couple of very exciting projects that are coming and, and that have been written specifically for you. Are you able to speak about those and share them? Um, yeah. Um, well, Paul Muldoon has written yes. me a piece, and uh, I'm performing that next year, yeah. um, um, based on Irish mythology. And Colm Tobin is writing me an Antigone, and we commence work on it in January in New York. Um, so yeah, these are this is a very exciting time. It is very exciting. Yeah. And and it's actually from your what's so interesting is that Comte Beans has responded to your performances in Nose Knife in Beckett. He's taken the what you bring to that and the range of your voice. We were talking about the, the you know the extensive range of your voice and how he has really in, uh, embraced that and responded to it and saw that performance and and then invited you to allow him to write this for you, which is quite an amazing thing, isn't it? That it's evolved from Beckett, but it's allowing you the space to be something else. Exactly. And, I mean, I couldn't have predicted that. I didn't set out with this course in mind. Mm. Um, But just by, um, you know, step by step um, of, of really trying to... I don't know, did the best job I possibly could with this work. I never knew Nose Knife was going to be here 10 years ago or 12 years ago when I started out on Not I. I never knew I was going to be working with Billy Whitelow or, you know, Walter Asmus or Edward Beckett or, you know, I never knew I was going to be here. I didn't set out, I wouldn't have been able to dream that big for myself. My ideas of, you know, who I was are um, where I was going was so limited and um, I did know that I, I wanted to do an Antigone, mm. um, or at least I wanted to to see what could be done with Antigone. Um, she's a character that I've always pursued, but I've never seen work, and um, I'm quite interested in, in, in why that is. I mean, I, I say she's why I became an actress, but I've never seen a version on stage where she wasn't presented as shrill or mad or insane. Um, ennui politicizing her in the 40s, Brecht the same a few years later, uh, she's always portrayed as an epitome of adolescence and idealism. Um, and Heaney, even lovely Heaney, sentimentalizes her so much. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how and why uh, she's abused in this way. Um, and when you go back and, and read the original, you know, you read this role economical, measured, intelligent, um, sophisticated argument that she places and leaves there. And it's the chorus that go, look how hysterical she is. It's like the Hillary Clinton campaign. <laughs> um, but it's, it's been interesting to see um, you know, misogyny yes. grow. And how is the treatment? Have you seen... Are you, or is it a work in progress, isn't it? it it's a work in progress. Okay. Yeah. And you're working with him at the moment, aren't you? You have a, a, a year-long residency, uh, essentially. Uh, yeah, I'm teaching at Columbia um, this year. And you flew in from New York, coming in a lecture. Last night, yes, I'm a little delirious now. Thank you for that. Not at all. <laughs> um, we have time for a few questions from the audience. So... Um, if there is anyone who would like to ask some questions, it would be great to 
Hi. Um, I was just wondering, because you've spoken a little bit about the representations of women on stage, I was wondering if there are any female playwrights or writers that you've enjoyed working with or might hope to work with their work at some point. Uh, well, Churchill's amazing. And I think... Um, Marina Carr is extraordinary, and I have worked with her. I did her Anna in Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm endlessly interested in what she's doing. Um, but I've also seen the effect of, and it's one of the conversations I have with Julia Holloway in that documentary about Dante and women, and, is that we have internalized centuries of man's contempt for us. And... One of the things that happened with this waking the feminist uh, movement that happened in Ireland, uh, I didn't mean for this conversation to get so political, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I'll carry on. Um, you know, this was this hashtag waking the feminists. I don't know if you heard about it here, but our national theatre, um, which is kind of where the, the Irish republicanism was born in the republic of that imagination on that stage, um, where our revolutionary soldiers 100 years ago were wearing costumes from the national theatre. Um, in their centenary year where the government gave them millions of pounds to take that conversation forward, which was great, you know, because it's a tricky conversation to have in a country that's had a civil war, so they handed it to the artists, and that's really great, except no female writer um, was included, not one. And there was a female writer who woke up to read a a tweet of our now fired and disgraced, quite rightfully, uh, artistic director, Um, where he tweeted the programme before hopping on a plane to uh, go off and have a holiday. And uh, uh, she just saw it in New York, Belinda McKeown, a great writer, and she turned around and and tweeted back and said, uh, why are there no female writers? And he wrote back that there was none good enough, them's the breaks. Now, them's the breaks became the gasoline for this inferno, social media inferno, called Waking the Feminist, hashtag Waking the Feminist. And um, the inclusion of Anna Karenina was the, the reason for that. But I went and met Belinda in New York, and I just thanked her for what she started. And she became quite tearful, and she said, you know, I find it very hard to write women. I've killed off all the women in my novels to focus on the men. In my plays, if you read them, it's the girlfriend and the mother. I find it so hard to even think of woman. And I think that's one of the challenges we face. And had it not been for, let's say, years of my idea of self um, uh, being suppressed, that responsibility that comes with the body, so the gift of not I that I've had, and this is only a tiny insight, and I don't think I've done anything great with it, but the insight that I gained... Um, having my body removed, the big gift was my ideas of that body and what that represents. And one of the things that happened to me during Not I, I performed it in a cave once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I'd been down there. It was a great idea of Sean Doran, an artistic director. It sounded great on paper. And it was great. It was just a little hard to pull off, you know. Um, <laughs> A week down in uh, one of the darkest, longest caves in uh, in Europe, and damp, and you had to pee down there. And anyway, the audience <laughs> came in um, by boat, 
and 27 of them by boat. And uh, next thing I'm like Batwoman stuck to the cave uh, going, um, like the clappers. And one of the things that happened when I was doing it, uh, maybe I went mad, but the result of that madness and just losing any sense of myself in such extreme, perfect blackout was my voice. What happened to my voice? A voice came to me that I didn't even know I could physically produce. I mean, a voice from Mordor. <laughs> and all, you know, traveling around stage, that blinding thing of when a light is shining on you in footfalls or in uh, Rockabye, um, the, the years of touring this works, I think I was on tour for about four years, yeah. um, aspects of myself developed that I didn't even know I could possess. I remember a Beckett expert years ago, and stay away from those if you come across any of them. Um, I'm joking. Um, they're great. Uh, but this one um, said to me, um, you're too young to play rockabye, poking my chest, at your age, at your age. And I thought, because I, uh, you know, I'm full of insecurities. Maybe he's right. Maybe I do lack the gravitas to understand this. Maybe I am lacking. And I remember ringing Billy Whitelow up on the phone, who was my mentor, and um, she said to me, "Rubbish. Beckett's characters are ageless and sexless. They're creatures. They're slices of life." And I thought, in that line in Rockabye. Um, fuck life, sorry Beckett, of course you're Beckett but fuck life you know any of us can access that jumping point and um, and looking down the barrel of life that way you know, you kind of need the momentum of a rocking chair sometimes to look down the barrel to see the loneliest truth of all that I am my own other like we're all alone we're all looking down the barrel of life, and we have to face it alone. And, um, and so I, I don't know what happened to my voice when I was doing Rockabye then, but I accessed something very true, and it was mine. And I do think that anyone tackling these works should bring, if they can, that kind of quintessential self to it and not perpetuate uh, museum pieces or a Beckettian style performance, which I do see a lot of people f feeling kind of uh, a sense of responsibility that they have to perform Beckett in, in that way. way. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Yes, just here. To what extent was Beckett's Irishness a part of your attraction to him? I think quite a lot, if I'm really honest. And that's not to say I've just come a few months ago, I saw a fantastic um, Happy Days in New York. I don't think it's uh, essential to interpreting Beckett, but I personally love um, hearing the nods and the humour and the rhythms, um, and I feel I know them, and I feel it's touching, um, that you know, I can really bring my own landscape to his because they're so close. Um, you know, he when he was directing Billy Whitelaw in Not I, he would ask her to pronounce things in a very Irish accent. And hearing Sean Phillips be interviewed about um, uh, A. Joe, he wanted that kind of relentless, flat, Midlands tone. Um, and so, 
even though maybe he wasn't aware of his own Irishness, which sometimes uh, friends of his joked that he wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he would write in French to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, uh, I think it was always there. I mean, he was always writing about home mm-hmm. in one way. Yeah. And Joyce, of course, as well had that. Yeah, yeah it was. I again talking about a writer in transit. Um, when you look at uh, Echoes Bones, which was only published about two years ago, was it two years ago? Three years ago? Posthumously, was his one of his first pieces um, that he couldn't get published back in the day, and that's when he was, you know, Beckett's or Joyce's assistant for a near blind Joyce uh, transcribing Finnegan's Wake. I mean, you can't really tell the difference between Joyce and Beckett then. I mean, he was, you know, a, a fantastic modernist. You know, all those old things being brought in, Celtic mythology, Gale, and the, um, and the giant. And um, I, I, I find when it, around 1943, 45, when he was visiting Ireland, um, he changed tact. He realized, he said, you know, that Joyce had gone so far in the way of knowing that he realized his way was that of impoverishment. And from then on, he was writing about the crones, the lonely, the lost. Um, the peeling away rather than the adding to Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and uh, that's what I adore about watching his work and visiting even these pieces, which is, in my mind, early, early Beckett. Mm-hmm. And was the same with Text for Nothing in 1950s. To last year, I adapted Il Seen Il Said, She's very late back, and they're worlds apart. Mm. Um, you know, we, we know there's other writers that are more chameleon-like, um, like Yeats, for example. But Beckett, you see a real relentless transit, <laughs> um, and you know, keep revisiting themes again, but tightening them each time and reducing them. Art is reduction, and Beckett took that to the extreme. Yeah. Um, I'm just interested in getting your views, I think I can guess what they might be, on um, the Beckett Estate's refusal to allow female act, a female production of Waiting for Godot. Because in a parallel universe, for example, I can see you performing it opposite, say, someone like Denise Goff. You know? So I just wonder what you think about that, and if you think it'll ever happen. Actually, I think it might surprise you. I'm not that, not that interested in playing any of the Godot roles. And, you know, this conversation comes up about the estate and uh, their, you know, rigid adherence to his uh, stage directions. And I'm a fan of that because I do think that Beckett was a real holistic artist. Um, When you look at his early writings of, let's say, footfalls, what you're actually looking at is a kind of dance notation. You have a musical score with the lines of the body being represented. And I'm, you know... I'm very aware that those nine steps are very important. You know, we talked about Dante, the nine circles of hell, you know, a meditation on conflict and trauma, nine months, a lifelong contract between mother and daughter. Um, When Fiona Shaw did it, she decided to just walk around the auditorium, and I heard it was a great performance, but the estate took it off, and she also cut out a few lines. (laughs) I, I, I actually tend to agree. Um, I think particularly stage work and you know it's why I felt so at sea without it with um, with uh, text for nothing um, in nose knife so I'm I'm a fan of how the estate have managed to um, 
try to steer the course. On the one hand, they have certainly given me huge liberties to adapt the text and put them on stage. And, you know, they did that with huge trepidation. And I had to send them my recordings and everything, what I was planning the whole way along. And Edward, who's a musician, um, you know, pays real attention to the musicality of the work. And often he'll say to me, you know, but, but you're running that on. Well, yeah, that's because there's a full stop there and there's a comma there. <laughs> and anyone who's <laughs> been to my performance knows that I pay homage to every comma and full stop and semicolon. And, 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 and I treat it like a musical score. Um, because I think Beckett was... His attention to detail, I mean, if a writer is to be so pedantic as to say to Billy Whitelow, Billy, Billy, will you bring your pencil over here? Four lines in, two words down, can you make those three dots, two dots? And he removed a dot. (laughs) And when you perform the piece and you're in the work, you hear the difference. And so, yeah, I mean, his argument then was that, well, women don't have prostrates. Since then, in the 80s, they discovered we do, actually. So I don't know, would that change with that knowledge? But that's not to say that there isn't plenty scope for interpretation within those, uh, uh, you know, apparent rigid stage directions. There's plenty scope for interpretation. I mean, my performance couldn't be more different from Billy's. In, um, in Footfalls or Not I or Rockabye, and yet we both stay within those lean lines. Yeah. Mm. Wow, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.